This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. What is the context? Well, I, I think uh, yeah, you have some neoconservatives in the United States who want to use this current crisis to fulfill their long-held goal of regime change in Iran. And that's been a goal since the 1979 Iranian Revolution overthrew the Shah, you know, who was kind of like a puppet of the United States uh, and Israel or very closely allied with them. He had been installed in the 1953 CIA coup. Uh, British intelligence was involved in that coup as well. Uh, and, you know, the Wall Street Journal is an organ of the neoconservatives, and they, they well, they've been calling for bombing Iran, and they had uh, <laughs> they were criticizing Biden for his weak weakness toward Iran. And, you know, the day after the Tribunova massacre, they had an op-ed basically suggest, and it was more like, you know, it wasn't an op-ed, it was a frontline story suggesting that Iran was behind the Tribunova massacre uh, without any evidence. It was pure yellow journalism. And it's like what we've seen in history, you know, with the Hearst Press and how they, you know, uh, try and, uh, you know, goes back to like the late 19th century when they blame Spain for attacking U.S. You know, the USS Maine. So they had a pretext to go to war with Spain, the Spanish-American War. It seemed to be reminiscent of that, you know, just blaming Iran uh, for a massacre. They, they claim Hamas had these meetings with Iran. Uh, but then others said that that was uh, those meetings never took place, and there was no evidence of that at all. Uh, and you know, the Wall Street Journal, you know, clearly for years, has really that has been their dream. I mean, I think they thought Iraq would have been a cakewalk, and their goal was really to march on to Tehran. And I think they had even made T-shirts, you know, "Real men go to Tehran" or something. And you know, Dick Cheney and his group, and that's the mentality of the Wall Street Journal. So they're promoting misinformation. And if you talk to people, a lot of people believe it, though. It's kind of like the misinformation, you know, after 9-11, they were spreading rumor that Iraq was behind 9-11. And a lot of people actually believed it. Or you bring it up in conversation with somebody in a regular walk of life, they might say, mention Iraq and 9-11 in the same breath. Just like today, they're mentioning Iran and the, tri uh, the massacre by Hamas. So it's like a, a strategy of the CIA, I think, to promote rumors and get in people's head, linking, uh, even if it's not true, and the Wall Street Journal at the forefront because they're the most aggressive hawkish elements, especially when it comes to the Middle East. They represent the hawks. What is yellow journalism? Well, it's journalism that's not sustained in fact. It's like we saw yellow journalism in the Russiagate scandal. Where they were reporting like the Steele dossier that were fabrications, uh, so, yeah, it's reporting misinformation usually to sell a war to uh, overtly or deliberately deceive the public. And, yeah, the history, like going back to the Spanish-American War, was to play up the supposed evil of an enemy and to create the impression the enemy had carried out a terrorist attack, like the sinking of the USS Maine, which uh, historians believe actually occurred as a result of a fire but they blamed in the press on Spain. Actually, I show my students because I teach American history and I show a copy of the newspaper where they said Spain sinks USS Maine. And then we read an article you know, by a historian who looked into it and there are two theories and none have to do with Spain. It was either a, black flag, a false flag operation where they deliberately blew it up to blame Spain, although it's hard to, there's no uh, smoking gun for that. 
and most likely it was just a fire, and then they the ship sunk, and they said, you know, but the the newspapers were reporting Spain did it, just like they're reporting uh, two weeks ago, Iran did it. Iran was with Hamas, and there's no evidence. Or just like they're reporting, you know, Trump is a Russian agent, and there's no evidence of that. And the, the motive there was to both undermine Trump, but also to build hatred for Russia. And look what's you know, going on now in Ukraine to get all that money, support giving all that money to Ukraine in a proxy war and a shadow war they're waging against Russia. So The problem, though, is when we talk about yellow journalism is how do we navigate what is and what isn't? Um, well, I, I think you have to read with a critical perspective because even those articles, sometimes they have very bold headline like Iran did it or you know Russia interfered in the election uh, or claiming. But is there actual evidence in that article to back up their headline? A lot of times there's not. And like with the Russia, yeah, they were uh, Russia Gate. They weren't actually, you know, and sometimes they're they're quoting, you know, hidden sources say this, but who? Why don't they name who those sources are? And you know, some of the things they're saying appear to be implausible. And you know, sometimes it comes to later, like in the Russia Gate case, they were often based it on the Steele dossier. So I guess somebody could believe, you know, it was by this guy, uh, Christopher Steele, who was a British intelligence agent. So I guess somebody could say, oh, well, it's based on a credible source. But then it came to light later that even Steele said that uh, it was a rumor and, uh, you know, he was in the pay of the Hillary Clinton campaign. So sometimes it does come out later, but a lot of times you can see that there isn't the corroborating evidence in that article. Uh, so if people, but often people just look at the headline or they're just watching TV and they see a headline on CNN and that, that's enough, I guess, to, to cement, solidify in the public mind this connection that isn't really there. And not that many people actually read the whole article and then start to say, wait a sec, this article doesn't really prove uh, you know, it's like if it was an essay in a college or high school class, they would get an F because they haven't proven their thesis. They've just presented some rumors. Uh, yeah. But it's only a tiny percent of the population that actually reads the full article and dissect it. I mean, why would you want to uh, uh, read CNN with a critical eye? I mean, they don't ever tell lies. <laughs> Exactly. Well, the weapon of mass destruction, I think they have a long track record of, of that. But I guess, you know, if you're, a, if you're a Democrat in the United States, that's like the holy grail, you know. It has to be, you know, you follow exactly what Wolf Blitzer tells you. And if you're a Republican, you watch Fox. And if Sean Hannity says it, then it must be true. That's very interesting because both Fox and CNN, for example, have the same... Uh, end Golia with regards to what's going on in the Middle East. Both of them don't like Iran. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and a lot of those TV networks, they support a particular political party or faction of that party, and they're really organs of that. Uh, and, yeah, and a lot of the issues, they agree, like supporting, you know, military aid to Israel or... Yeah, hatred of Iran and goal of regime change and how evil Iran is, or Russia. I mean, you can't really find anywhere in the media where they would say anything positive about Russia or have any news segment 
where there's something positive uh, going on in Russia or trying to explain why a lot of the Russians would support their current leader uh, or similar for Iran or Venezuela. Any of these countries are, are just completely demonized in the media and the public kind of eats it up. I mean, you have, uh, I mean, there is a, sec a section of the public that's very skeptical. People like us, you know, and young, you know, tend to be younger people, uh, but a lot of the population just goes along with what they hear um, and they don't do their own research. You know, I tell students to try and, you know, think for themselves and not just believe because some media figure said it, but do your own research, you know, go to the library, start reading articles on the internet to broaden your own knowledge of that topic and then you could have a better assessment, but people don't always have the time to do that as well. Speaking of yellow journalism, uh, I suppose a very current example uh, with regards to Israel and Gaza is the story of the 40 decapitated babies or, or burnt in an oven or whatever it was. I mean, this is just outstanding in terms of the the degree of propaganda. I mean, baby baby propaganda has been used for decades yeah, you know, they claimed in Vietnam there was a story, and it was written by a CIA agent named Tom Dooley, who was like undercover as a um, religious figure who was doing charity work, but really he was uh, a CIA agent, and he wrote articles in Reader's Digest about how the Viet Minh were disemboweling women and cutting out the fetuses. And, you know, in World War One, they claimed the Belgians were uh, uh, eating babies and, you know, killing pregnant women and and also kill fetuses. None of, you know, it's just like standard war propaganda to make it seem like the enemy or barbarians. And yeah, they're casting it as you know, civilization versus uh, you know, barbarism. And even yeah, a friend of mine on Facebook, because I went to a Jewish school in uh, elementary and high school, and I see you know, a friend of mine from high school who are uh, generally uh, well, great people, but uh, I saw them repeating, a few of them repeating uh, this mantra that we're civilized people fighting bar barbarism. And those images um, are, are designed to reinforce that ideology uh, or ideological justification for this uh, savage uh, war that's going on. How influential has yellow journalism been in terms of shaping public opinion and perhaps even U U.S. foreign policy? Extremely influential, yeah. And I would recommend to readers two books. Uh, one was written in the 70s by Philip Knightley, and it's called, um, I can't remember off the top of my head the title of the book, but he's a British author, and he, it's a history of war correspondence. Uh, going back to the Crimean War, and he has chapters on World War One and and it's just brilliant yeah, in showing uh, the propaganda and its influence. And I remember that he, the chapter on World War One, he's got a lot on those atrocity stories about Germany and you know, Germany allegedly committed in Belgium. And he actually interviewed those some <coughs> correspondent who, who were there and said those stories were not true. And one American correspondent member said about one in ten of the story, like there was some truth that the Germans did commit atrocities in Belgium, but they were embellishing it completely, and so only about one out of the ten stories were true. Uh, and he also, uh, I think, discusses the coverage of the the Russian Civil War, and it was similarly very biased. Uh, and he goes all the way up Korea, Vietnam, 
you know, in some cases they were overtly censored. Uh, like in Korea, MacArthur censored journalists, so they couldn't report the truth. Vietnam was more open, uh, and that's why there was so much huge opposition against the war. The other book I could recommend is um, by A.B. Abram. It's a recent book, and it's called Atrocity Fabrications. And it, it kind of goes through the same history and covers, goes right up to the present and how they invent these stories, uh, you know, whether the, like he includes the, uh, you know, in the first Gulf War and the run up to that, they had this woman testifying that Iraqi soldiers were allegedly pulling out the incubators from babies. And it turned out she worked for a public relations firm and she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador. And the story was completely fabricated, but that mobilized public opinion against Saddam Hussein and support of the U.S. war uh, in the Persian Gulf that ultimately resulted in, I think, 100,000 Iraqi deaths. And then you have, you know, wars in the 90s, like they're painting, you know, Slobodan Milosevic as like a reincarnation of Hitler, Genghis Khan, uh, and that uh, most of those stories were fabricated. And also he's got a chapter on China, and like even Tiananmen Square, uh, there really was no major massacre by the Chinese government. And then, you know, with the Uyghur genocide, alleged genocide in Uyghur is completely fabricated and taken out of context. So it just continues on and on. And we're supposed to believe we're good and there are a bunch of barbarians out there and we need to fight them uh, or overthrow <laughs> that government. <laughs> And uh, people well, eat it up, yeah. Yeah, they do. It's weird. Do I mean, me and you can see through the lies, but not not everybody's like us. Why do you think that is, though? I don't know. You know, I'd have to under, uh, uh, analyze human psychology as to why some people ultimately que uh, question authority. I mean, some of it may be. I think like uh, some of it is like religious institutions sometimes encourage obedience. You know, I, I'm not anti-religion, but the way uh, some of them operate, they they encourage like obedience, uh, and, and the way to do good is like to obey the father. You know, uh, uh, whether it's the priest or and and the way kids grow up sometimes that they're in, instructed to be obedient to the parent or the teacher. Uh, not to think for themselves, uh, and that that represents you know defiance and is bad, and and kids want to be good. They want to impress their elders, so maybe there's some of that as to why people uh, grow up that way. Some may be self-interest that you have people who are well, well off financially or live very comfortable lives, so they don't want to believe that the world is more complex than they're told because it might you know give them problems in their life so they just want to advance in the society so they go along you know with, with whatever people tell them uh, part out of self-interest um so those would be two explanations i could come up with <laughs> and some of it's just the power of the propaganda i mean the image mm. is designed you know, some people are you know they're very sensitive and they see that image and it really affects them. They become very emotional. You know, a lot of politics about – and successful politicians, unfortunately, they know how to manipulate people's emotions. Mm. And they understand that people don't necessarily have the time to really investigate for themselves. And I think another pr – a big problem is the uh, lack of proper history education in Western countries. 
Uh, so people don't have that knowledge of history. Like, you know, I, I read those books that so gave me an understanding of the pattern in history about how they manipulate uh, public opinion and how war correspondents are cheerleaders. Because the nightly book, he shows how basically, I mean, they're supposed to go there and report independently about the war, but really they function in most cases as cheerleaders. Even if there was no censorship, they saw themselves as supporting their side, and they're basically part of the war effort. Uh and, um, you know, they have a, a, a huge impact. And if people don't have that historical consciousness of how this, you know, propaganda and manipulation has taken place in the past, like in the Spanish-American War, what I was describing with the yellow journalism in World War One, with the inflation of German atrocities in Belgium to build support for the war effort against Germany. If, if you have a good historical consciousness, you'd be more skeptical today about what's going on today and can mm. point to those parallels. But most people don't know that history, and it's not the history they were ever taught in school. So it's it's not part of their consciousness. So they just they read something and they believe it. When we talk about the broader war against Iran within the context of Israel and Gaza, what exactly do we mean? Uh, well, I mean. What, uh, already, I think Israel has bombed uh, Lebanon and Syria, if I'm not mistaken. So they're already expanding the war, and that could draw the Iranians in. And that, that may be one way. If their goal is, is to take the war into Iran or to affect regime change, drawing you know, uh, Lebanon and Syria would be the first step because Iran, uh, and that could draw the Iranians in. Since, uh, and if Israel... Uh, starts to uh, you know carry out the kind of uh, atrocities they're doing in Gaza, in Lebanon or Syria, Iran would become more aroused and, and might intervene more directly, and then they could uh, have a reason to take the war into Iran itself. So I think that's one of the major d dangers we're seeing um, right now that, that, that exists. I was going through uh, one, a 170-page document by the Brookings Institution called A Path to Persia. And it lays out um, foreign policy that's related to Iran and basically all roads lead there. I think so, yeah. I'll, I'll look that document up after the show because I'd be interested to see what they say. But that, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a goal since the 1979 Iranian Revolution because uh, they establish a more independent government, you know, in a key country in the Middle East that the U.S. and Western countries had been able to effectively control with the Shah in power. So they want to go back to those days of having the Shah. And you know, Iran is seen as a, a regional uh, threat because they could become more, uh, I mean, they are already somewhat of a regional power, even in the face of sanctions. I mean, the U.S., has applied these uh, draconian sanctions on Iran and attempt to weaken their economy and weaken their ability uh, to project their own power in the Middle East. But I, I think that would be a major fear of the United States and Western countries, that Iran, an independent uh, country, would uh, become a regional power and undercut U.S. interests and U.S. proxies like Israel. And you know, Iran supports the Assad government in Syria, who's also anti-imperialist and anti-West, 
and more of an independent nationalist, which is why the U.S. wanted to overthrow him for many years, him and his father. And they were kind of somewhat of an heir of the Nasser. You know, Gamal Abdel Nasser was a, a socialist in Egypt in the 50s and 60s who promoted, you know, pan-Arabism, unity of African countries, uh, of Middle East countries, sorry, uh, to strengthen them against Western empires. Almost and like so Gaddafi. Control the What's that? Almost like Gaddafi. Exactly. Gaddafi was the same kind of leader, and they had him removed. Um, so any independent nationalistic leader or promotes unity in Middle East countries, uh, they would want to undermine. They're willing to support Islam. I mean, the Iranian regime is a uh, fundamentalist government, but the U.S. has supported jihadists and fundamentalists often to undermine secular nationalistic governments like in Syria and Libya and uh, Egypt before that because the CIA was supporting the Muslim Brotherhood against Nasser. But in this case, yeah, Iran is, I think it's just a threat of an independent uh, country that would project its power more in the Middle East and is supporting rivals uh, or adversaries of the U.S. like uh, like Assad in Syria and Hezbollah. Um, so. uh, you said fundamentalist and I've seen similar terminology being used to describe the Iranian government, but what is meant by that? Because the country does seem to be quite stable. It's growing. Yeah, well, I guess it's more theocratic government, but uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the in internal politics in Iran. I mean, I think there are oppressive aspects, but I think if you talk to Iranian, they say they may feel more free. Uh, under that society and that regime, certainly then under the regime of the Shah, which systematically oppressed uh, and and persecuted you know political rivals to the Shah, many were sent to jail. You know, their museums devoted to the uh, terrible jails that the Shah ran as, and the torture carried out by his secret police. Uh, so I, I don't think the scale of oppression is the same as under the Shah. I mean, I think they do want to enforce a, a theocratic model of governance. Uh, but The Iranian revolution, how significant is that in terms of what we're seeing now? Well, I think it's significant in history because it's uh, Iran uh, asserting its independence uh, and ensuring that it was not a vassal state of the West and the United States. So that's the most significant, I think. Uh, I mean, the Shah crushed all the leftists. You know, Mossadegh, who he overthrew, was a um, you know was a, a leftist, and he was aligned with the Tudeh party, which was like a working uh, socialist communist party. And when the Shah came in, he crushed Mossadegh's supporters and crushed the Tudeh party, and most were sent into exile, or a lot were imprisoned and tortured or killed. Uh, so when you you know the, the left was destroyed. And so the main opposition to the Shah came from the uh, more Islamic theocratic elements and led to them ultimately to triumph over the Shah, who was hated among the majority of the Iranian population. Uh, so now you have this kind of regime that you know the U.S. and West hypocritically opposed when they destroyed all their rivals and they empowered this monster who engendered opposition. And I, I think they're 
goal is to you know have a kind of spiritual revival and to use Islam as a basis for developing a more socially just society. Uh, but I mean, there are critics of that regime who say they're intolerant of other religions. I, mean, I think there are political prisoners, and I mean, there are some harsh elements of that government, from my understanding. They execute opponents, uh, uh, like in these uprisings. Although they were Western backed, I think, uprisings, but the repression was fairly harsh. So I read about that they were executing people, uh, and I think they do have a pattern of executing people. So uh, I wouldn't say it's a per, uh, necessarily a model regime as far as human rights. But uh, the West, I don't think, has the uh, moral authority or mandate to dictate anything, given that they've supported the worst regime in the Middle East, uh, and that this regime has legitimacy among considerable number of Iranians because it is an independent regime that rules in the interests of Iran, and that's you know trying to project more power for Iran in the Middle East and adopt economic, you know, more of a a nationalist economy that's not dominated by foreign corporations. Although, I mean, it is a capitalist uh, government, but it's not, it's more Iranian nationalist and not going to allow its economy to be totally dominated by foreign interests like uh, under the Shah where foreign oil companies can just control, control the industry and keep Iran at most Iranian impoverished. You mentioned um, vassal states, and Iran is not a vassal state of, of any other country. Would you say that no. Israel is a vassal state of the U.S., or conversely, is the U.S. a vassal state of Israel? That's a good question, yeah. I mean, I think the U.S. has used Israel for its own purposes in the Middle East, uh, and, they, and I think there was some debate, you know, when the state of Israel was founded, I think there was more open debate about in the government, and I think Eisenhower tried to adopt a more neutral position because he understood that it was dangerous for U.S. Uh, government and foreign policy to alienate the Arabs, so uh, they didn't want to uh, support Israel too much. For instance, Eisenhower did not support Israel during the Suez Crisis and Suez War, where Israel, England, and France invaded Egypt who then controlled by Nasser, you know, who's trying to take control over the Suez Canal. Um, and I think Eisenhower was popular in the Arab capitals in the Arab world, although he it was his administration that was involved in the coup in Iran. So he didn't have exactly a clean record in the Middle East, but that did earn him some plaudits in the Middle East. And he understood the U.S. should maybe play a moderating role and, and not alienate the Arab population, which could be dangerous for American interests. But then starting in Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, I think the U.S. shifted towards full-fledged, you know, unequivocal support for Israel. And the Six-Day War was a turning point because the U.S., you know, had wanted to remove Nasser for a reason I was describing earlier, the pan-Arab socialist who wanted to unify the Arab countries under socialism. And he was also aligned with the Soviet Union. And they had tried to support the Muslim Brotherhood against Nasser. And they tried to orchestrate a coup like they did in Iran in 53 against Mossadegh. But those efforts failed. And Nasser was very popular in Egypt and throughout the Arab world. But Israel did a great uh, service for the United States when they humiliated him in the Six-Day War. Because that was a stunning victory by Israel in a war they provoked. Because almost all Israel's wars, as uh, high-level IDF officials have admitted, 
that Israel provoked every one of the wars uh, they fought, although they claimed they were attacked first, but they almost always provoked it. Uh, but they they humiliated and defeated Nasser in six days, stunningly. And Nasser was um, basically um, ruined politically then, and he died only a few years later. So, And then his successor, Anwar Sadat, was much more pro-West. So that was a great victory for the United States foreign policy since they hated Nasser, uh, who was much more powerful even than, than Gaddafi. And uh, so they always treasured from that point their relationship with Israel, and they really started arming Israel to the hilt at that time and didn't, you know, protest Israel's, because that's when Israel took control of the West Bank and Gaza and became an occupying power, but the U.S. didn't really uh, challenge them in any way. And, over, you know, since that time, they poured more and more money. So I would say, yeah, in a way, and then Israel... Yeah, became kind of uh, drunk off all these weapons they got, kind of like Zelensky. They get so many weapons, they become intoxicated with power, and, and they think they're so strong and mighty they could do whatever they want. And that's what we've seen in uh, recent years with Israel. So uh, I think ultimately it may have hurt their society because it, it, it created this arrogance, and now they've alienated all of world opinion against them. Yeah, they have done that in just a space of a few weeks. Yeah. Well, they've gone really overboard this time, even by their standard. I mean, you know, 2009 and 2014 was was horrible in itself. You know, they just slaughtered a lot of in Operation Cast Lead and Protective Edge. And I had a friend in the IDF who served in the Six-Day War, and he said, you know, I'd have to think twice. if I, He had two daughters, but he's living in Canada, so they didn't have to join the army. But he's like, if I had a son and I was living in Israel, I would think twice because I didn't join the army to kill women and children. You know, I, 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 I joined the army to defend my country, but not do that. And that was like in 2009, the cast led. But, you know, that killed, I don't know, you can look up the numbers, but probably one or 2,000 were killed, at least in those operations, or maybe 3,000. But just in a few days, they've killed how many thousand they've leveled uh, camps and hospitals and uh, and uh, yeah, there's no no restraint, no regard for the civilians, and they, you know they've openly said these are human animals we're dealing with. You know, the quote from Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, said we're dealing with human animals, and that that is a kind of language of genocide when you totally dehumanize a people and refer to them as animals. You have no uh, you know concern that you're slaughtering them en masse. So, and I think the world sees that. And the sad thing is that the Jews were a victim of genocide. To see Jews using this kind of language and dehumanizing rhetoric when they experienced that in World War II in Europe and had a history of being demonized and dehumanized, it's sad that as Jewish people we can't learn from that history and not do that to another people. And there were uh, prospects for compromise. Uh, in the 90s, there was a peace process that was progressing. And it wasn't ideal. And you know, the Oslo Accord, without getting into all the detail, were highly problematic. Uh, but there were some breakthroughs in the late 90s uh, that brought some real you know, benefit to the Palestinians and were moving towards a two-state. And that was um, a good prospect. So, I mean, there are, you know, it's not an entirely hopeless situation where the two people cannot live together. 
because they, they were in dialogue a whole decade and they were starting to get some uh, programs together that actually both sides were, uh, you know, thought was, was workable and that was satisfying to the Palestinians to some extent as well as the Jews. So it's not hopeless and to do what they're doing now is just unconscionable. But Jeremy, Israel is just defending itself. <laughs> Well, and then you can get into how did this attack occur? Uh, I mean, if they were defending itself, why didn't they have better security uh, on October 7th when they have a, uh, you know, a heavily fortified border? How could these lightly armed fighters get in and attack a rock concert? Uh, I mean, a lot of people are asking questions. And I mean, it's, it seemed very convenient. You know, the Netanyahu government was really unpopular within Israel. There were huge protests on the eve of this uh, conflagration. Uh, he was facing indictment on corruption charges. There was a huge rebellion over his, uh, you know, court reform and his uh, basically uh, abolishing the independence of the judiciary. And then all of a sudden, this attack occurs, and you know the groups that were against him are enlisting in the war effort. Because I, yeah, I read an article yesterday in the New York Times that. It was about all these people who had been leading the protests against Netanyahu over his judicial uh, initiatives and that they're uh, now enlisting in the war effort. So it is very convenient for a government that's about to be uh, overthrown to have this kind of incident. And you know, many are suggesting that he allowed or his government allowed that to go forward. They didn't really guard the border properly because they wanted some kind of incident that could give them the excuse to start a war and that would fortify their power domestically. And, and some of these are the extremists within the uh, Israeli government who hate the Palestinians and, and, and want to shed their blood, it seems. Uh, well, I suppose a greater argument surrounding the uh, defense position is that, well, all the neighboring countries want to wipe Israel off the map, so therefore they have to be this aggressive? Well, I mean, they should focus on their security, firstly. I mean, if they want to protect their people. So leaving the border undefended, I mean, you can be aggressive all you want, but if your goal is security, the most important would be to protect your border and to not allow these uh, fighters to come in uh, to attack civilians at a raw concert, and they fail. So they fail at that. And I mean, arguably, they've compromised the security of their people because if you inflame a population, they're going to strike back at you. And if you, you know, I mean, the if you mistreat them in the way that the Gazans and Palestinians have been mistreated over decades, and you strangle their economy, you know, creates generations of hopeless youth who have no economic prospects. Uh, they're going to be uh, prone to join more radical political organization. They have nothing to lose, and they hate you. They feel that you've ruined their lives. And, and those are the same people who displaced you in the Nakba in 48 and who uh, occupied your land. And, I mean, most terrorism, you know, I've read numerous books about the history of terrorism, and I used to te teach a course on the history of terrorism. And the theorists, you know, there's one good book I read by Robert Pape, who's a rather conservative scholar, but a very good research of the University of Chicago. And he said his thesis was very, very simply, which he actually proved, unlike the Wall Street Journal, with that terrorism results from uh, foreign occupations of land. That's basically his thesis. And he proves it in a 200-page book. 
he had numerous case studies. Looks at Sri Lanka and others where where there was major injustices and and um, colonial occupation that led to terrorism. So if you want to protect your population from terrorism, there's a pretty simple formula, and that's not to occupy their land or treat them horribly and, and strangle their economy so their youth have no future and all they want is to get even and shed some blood, especially when you've shed a lot of their blood, they're going to want some revenge. Unfortunately, that is human nature. So I don't think this Israeli government has really been interested in the security of its people. And I think there's a lot of corruption that there are a lot of people in Israel making a lot of money. You know, the billionaire class, just like here in the United States, make money off the wars and the occupation and oppression of the Palestinians. So they wanted to go on. And that's why Israel funded Hamas. Uh, because they prefer the more radical enemy than the Palestinian Authority that actually they were sitting down with and would have hatched out some kind of political compromise and agreement with the Palestinian Authority. But uh, the, these uh, extremists and, and billionaires didn't want that, so they decided to fund Hamas and create a permanent war, which they get rich off. And, and when the people start to rebel, they just create more conflict, so they're, they're scared and they mobilize them uh, for war. Uh, and they're not, you know, the rebellion is, is stifled for now, at least. In what way does this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis lead to a war with Iran? Well, as I was describing before, I think that's a very real threat right now because of the uh, regional, you know, the the fact that Israel is taking the war into Lebanon and Syria. Uh, mm. uh, Iran is allied with the Assad government; they support Hezbollah, so that'll draw them in, and that could be used as a uh, uh, excuse for the Israelis to take the war further into Iran, which has always been their goal. The Israelis, as well as the neoconservatives in the United States, who never accepted the 1979 Iranian Revolution and want a pliable government, ideally a leader like the Shah, who they could control and who will serve U.S. strategic interests in the Middle East. So I could see this quickly escalating into a war with Iran. Now, where does Saudi Arabia slot in? Uh, that's a good question. Well, Saudi Arabia historically, or in the recent history, was an adversary of Iran, although uh, China helped to broker a um, peace alliance, basically, or you know, diplomatic arrangement. Um, I'm not sure what what Saudi Arabia is doing right now. That would be interesting. I haven't looked into exactly what their policy is related to this conflict do you know like what position they've taken are they showing their solidarity i mean most of the middle east are displaying solidarity for the palestinians because their fellow arab being slaughtered uh by what's viewed in the middle east as a west western proxy government so i think most are displaying solidarity but i i don't know how much support so i don't think saudi arabia is giving much support at all to mm. Gaza. And yeah, I mean, they're still leery, weary of Iran. So the U.S. could ally with, I mean, so, you know, Iran was supporting the Houthi in Yemen, although I think the media played up the Iranian support, but they still had some support. And that was Saudi Arabia's enemy you know, in Yemen. So, you know, Saudis still mistrust uh, Iran. Uh, 
And I probably their goal would be to stay out of any wider Middle East conflict if the United States gets involved. And I guess they're trying to, you know, they have strategic relations with the United States uh, that they would probably want to preserve as well as with a country like Russia and China. Well, I was just about to ask. So if we're looking at a dartboard, the bullseye, I'm guessing, is Iran. And around it uh, would be the countries that we've just spoken about. Now, the elephant in the room, or shall I say the dragon and the bear in the room, would be China and Russia. What's going on? Are they just sitting on the sidelines observing? Well, uh, Russia, I know, has been trying to mediate. They invited Hamas. Actually, they invited some Hamas delegates to Russia. Uh, Russia was trying to help them in some way, at least with things like you know, to promote the, uh, their release of hostages. And Hamas had some, there was something that they were able to do in return uh, for them. I mean, I, th I think they're trying to, uh, you know, diffuse the conflict. I mean, I think what we see, and, and this could pretend a major shift, I think, in world opinion as well as a shift towards a more multipolar world order because, you know, the U.S. is seen as so uh, tied to Israel that they're not able to try and mediate this conflict, and they're the ones perhaps aggressively pushing uh, an escalation of this conflict and a potential war with Iran, whereas Russia and China are really the adults in the room who are trying to defuse the conflict. They're making more balanced statements. You know, they've expressed solidarity for, for victims on all sides, and uh, uh, they you know, are trying to advance more uh, diplomacy and diffusing the conflict. And I think they're winning more support around the world and that they're showing that they are more uh, mature leaders who are playing a greater role on the world stage to affect world peace uh, and a role that the United States can no longer play. So I think there are major um, power shifts going on. And I think those two countries represent hope for some kind of mediation short of a, a escalator, potentially world war. Well, by extension, then, I, I'm guessing BRICS generally favors Palestine and Gaza more. I think so, because a lot of the BRICS countries, you know, have closer experience of, of colonialism and Western empires. And, um, you know, Israel is seen as the proxy of the United States as, as well as, you know, settler colonial state and the way they've treated the Palestinian population. So, yeah, there's a lot of solidarity, I think, in the BRIC state towards the Palestinian people, more empathy for them. And I think that's, you know, worldwide. I mean, the U.S. is really isolated. I mean, at the U.N., most nation states have supported for years Palestinian statehood. They've been against the expansion of Israeli settlements and a lot of uh, U.S. and Israeli policies toward the Palestinians. So uh, I think the U.S. really is isolated. And it gets to my earlier point that the U.S. has squandered any moral capital it may have once had, and people are more and more looking at the BRICS countries, to China and Russia, and we're seeing really the um, not, not just uh, uh, initiation, but institutionalization of a multipolar world order where these countries are really playing a key role on the world stage in, in diplomacy and peace mediation. And the U.S. is just uh, isolated more and more and is no longer the world hegemon that uh, other countries look to uh, to sol help solve crises. When we look at this conflict, 
between Israel and Palestine. What do you think is the moral position to take? What would be the moral high ground? Um, I think the moral high ground would be to do what Russia is doing, which is to try and mediate uh, and try and broker a solution and a peace and to demand a ceasefire and uh, diplomatic uh, dialogue to defuse this situation. Uh, and ideally, over the long term, you'd have a revitalization of the peace process uh, and dialogue as to what the best long-term solution, whether it's a two-state solution, whether it's some kind of binational state, you know, those things uh, are complicated and would have to be discussed over time. But the important thing is that you have that discussion and, and the dialogue going on. So I think uh, responsible countries should, and people around the world should demand that of their countries, that they, you know, support mediation. In the United States, I think, yeah, it's the opposite, in that they're just supporting Israel to the hilt. Uh, and look what Israel's doing. And they're providing all these weapons and those weapons will be used to kill Palestinians. Uh, so on one hand, I think you know everybody should be empathetic. Uh, the Israelis who are killed, these are civilian, these are mm. youth who are at a rock concert, were just out to have a good time, and that was horrific uh, for Hamas. Even if they are an oppressed people, there's no uh, justification for attacking youth at a rock concert. Uh, so, I mean, there are some factions on the left who are celebrating when some of the Israelis got killed, and I, I cannot identify with that at all. Uh, I think uh, you know, people who are on the left or progressive or peace groups should have empathy for victims on all sides uh, and should not celebrate terrorism, but they should try and understand where that terrorism comes from, what the root cause of it, and yeah. to, to address the root cause. And the root cause is a lot of the Israelis' policy, the occupation that needs to end, uh, the strangulation of their economy, uh, the violence on Israel's part, those things have to end. And uh, hopefully the terrorism problem would, would be reduced or overcome. And some kind of long-term set, there has to be a push for dialogue and, and debate about what the best long-term solution would be, whether it's two-state, whether it's binational state, how we can, how some kind of framework could be worked out to address the concern of both peoples. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the Ukraine invasion. Uh, everybody just thought that Putin woke up in a bad mood and decided to invade Ukraine, and that's it. There's no historical context. Absolutely, yeah. And I find that, sadly, a lot in the Jewish community. They don't want to look uh, at the history and how some of the Israeli policy, they just think they're automatically on the right side and they're horrified. You know, and somebody texted me on that day for my family, and it's like there was a sudden attack and it's horrible. And I was like, yes, it's horrible, but you can't say it was sudden because, you know, they've been, Israeli has been, uh, you know, antagonizing the Palestinians and mistreating them for so long that something like that is inevitable. And yeah, in the Ukrainian case, there was complete uh, misunderstanding uh, of the background and history and the role that the U.S. Uh, and EU had played in the Maidan coup of 2014 and the attacks on the people of eastern Ukraine that Russia was r responding to uh, because the media didn't cover the, the Ukraine conflict was horribly covered in the media. Mm -hmm. And even today, uh, there was there's no empathy 
uh, for the Ukraine. Like, I mean, it's good to see there are a lot of peace rallies and a lot of people are coming out to show their empathy for the Palestinians who are suffering now. And I think that's good. But there was never anything like that for Ukraine. The, the people of eastern Ukraine were brutalized for nine years after the Maidan coup. And it, the UN documented that 80 to 85 percent of these shellings were being carried out by the Ukrainian military, not by Russia. Most of the civilian casualties were from the Ukrainian military that was funded by the United States. And the people of East Ukraine were suffering horribly. They had to live in underground bunkers, sometimes for years. Kids had to grow up in these bunkers. They could barely go to school because they were being shelled constantly by the Ukrainian military. And these neo-Nazi battalions were committing horrible atrocities uh, against the people of eastern Ukraine, and there was no empathy for them. There were no peace marches. There were no peace groups coming out with uh, you know, posters or, or, or newspapers about the people being killed, these eastern Ukrainians uh, being killed by uh, Ukraine funded by the United States. So um, I, that, that's just appalling, but some of it is, a lot of it has to do with the lack of media coverage. Uh, so there was no awareness among even people who identified progressives or peace-oriented peace people. And then they just, yeah, they thought uh, the blue Russia invaded, when if you get the perspective of the East Ukrainian people, they were begging for Russia to come in for years to save them from an attack on their people. And, and Ukraine had tried to eviscerate their culture by banning the Russian language and, and imposing their own uh, language uh, on the people. Uh, and they had reason to want to, uh, you know, they were to separate from Ukraine after that coup. Uh, and this history just, yeah, was not known by, still not known by most of the public, uh, certainly in the, in the United States or Canada. I was just thinking now while you were talking that while there's this hot war going on um, in Gaza, there's an invisible war going on against the rest of us. That's the propaganda information war. Absolutely, yeah, and that's why your program is so important, and others like it. And I think you know I'll, uh, these kind of program like yours are starting to reach more and more people, especially young people, uh, which is good. And they're waking up more, and we need a you know political movement of young people for social change. Uh, and yeah, it's been a virulent propaganda, like on the you know case of Russia and Ukraine. It's been really virulent for at least 10 or 15 years, and Putin has been portrayed very similarly. I, I did an article comparing how Putin was portrayed to the German Kaiser during World War One, and there was even a, a cover of The Economist magazine where uh, Putin had these like red horns, like he's the devil, and it was similar to the propaganda posters in World War One, where the Kaiser was depicted that way. And it's, it's designed to whip up hatred against somebody. And it's totally irrational and divorced from reality. Uh, and that's just one example of it. You know, we've had it in the, in the COVID issues uh, kind of related to it. The, the, the censorship uh, in countries that valued free speech and free debate, the level of censorship has really gone to extreme levels uh, on these kind of issues we're discussing as well in the COVID issue. Uh, where uh, doctors and scientists who were mm. questioning the dominant narrative were just shut out of the media and demonized. And you had a political candidate who's now 
polling quite well in the United States, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is viciously attacked. Mm. Uh, every time he's mentioned in the media, it's accompanied with a slur that he's a conspiracy theorist and wacko. Not one article could men just mention him as a regular candidate and quote from him. They always have to apply a negative label to him. And there have been hit piece after hit piece. And it's not it's not journalism. It's 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 just demonize the, the way they demonize Putin. They demonize Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it is more virulent than I think than in the past. I mean, in the past, there have been mm. candidates to challenge the status quo. And they may have been maligned to some extent, but they they weren't attacked in this way. No. And there have been death threats. You know, I think Kennedy's life is in jeopardy. His home was invaded. They're refusing him secret service, and he's already had a few uh, assassination attempts against him. So it is very ugly out there. There, there are a few examples, though, when uh, a political candidate has broken through that information war against him. Uh, warts and all, Donald Trump is a, an example of that. The media absolutely tried to stop him in every respect. I remember back in 2015 and 2016, and he he still won. Well, that's true, yeah. They did with the Russiagate, uh, although I guess the, the conservative media were more flattering to him, so uh, I guess he has a base in the conservative that are considerable. But yeah, the CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, yeah, they have been extremely biased <laughs> uh, against him. Uh, so I, I would agree. Yeah. Well, and it goes to show that a lot. Of, I think the other thing that has changed is the legitimacy. You know, he used the word fake news. Yes. And that term kind of caught on and resonated with a lot of people because they don't trust the media, especially younger people. Uh, they see how biased it is, uh, and they don't trust it. And that's why mm. alternative media platforms are starting to really take off. Um, and a lot more people, especially young people, are getting their news and information from podcasts, from uh, media online. Uh, so that is changing, yeah. So the, the demonization can only go so far. Like, yeah, Robert Kennedy's polling very well. If you look at some of the latest polls, he's got like 20, 30 percent uh, even of the vote, uh, they're saying. So. Uh, you know, it shows the slurs against them only go so far, and it reaches a certain audience, and it may be an older audience that mm. uh, you know still watches that stuff and believes it, but the younger people are not buying it. So that that does bring hope for the future, I think. How do you see? Let me sorry. Let me ask that differently. In in your opinion, Jeremy, what are the different scenarios that play out here in terms of Gaza and Israel? Um, play out where? In the Middle East or in the United States? Or? Middle East. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's hard to predict the future. I mean, one dangerous scenario I laid out is that Israel extend the war more into Lebanon and, and Syria, and that draws the Iranians in, or they accuse Iran of doing something, and that's used as an excuse to bomb Iran. You know, the climate, I mean, we're seeing a very tense climate, and you know they're they're clamping down on on, uh, on free speech in Israel. I know some journalists who tried to report on things like there was an article I read in Consortium News about a Orthodox Jew who was reporting some things from the front line. It was kind of critical of Israeli operation. They just he had to go into hiding. 
so, and in the United States, you know, some students at, at different universities have been, I guess they call it docs, like their names are being paraded about, and they've had job offers taken away. And these are like students in like Harvard and Ivy League schools who, you know, wrote article or posted something on social media criticizing Israel. Uh, and it's increasingly tense climate uh, around this. So, you know, that that's the kind of climate, it's a warlike climate, uh, and they could escalate this thing. So that, that that is one very dangerous scenario. I think the Israeli goal is to destroy Hamas. So, and, you know, they're removing a lot of the uh, Gazans are leaving to Egypt so I, I don't know what's going to happen because Hamas was the, you know, ruled over Gaza. So who's going to rule over it after this is all over? How are they going to rebuild all the devastated building and landscape? I don't know. You know, the world, I mean, and then, you know, I mean, they already have to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, it's a lot of countries are being destroyed. Uh, and the UN is, is weak, unfortunately, to help these beleaguered countries. So, uh, you know, I, the, the future looks horrible for the Gazans. I don't know how they're going to ever recover from this. And that may be the goal of the leadership in Israel. Paradoxically, would you say that Israel has already lost? Now, I think they've lost a lot of world opinion, uh, and that's terrible for them. I mean... You know, when it was found that Israel, uh, I mean, the idea was that this would be a beacon for the Jews who oppressed people, and this was a new country. I mean, there was so much promise in that country. Uh, it was even found in more, you know, socialist ideal, the kibbutz, more a sharing mentality, and they really squandered that uh, in recent years, the way they brutalized the Palestinian people. Um, so that's, I think, Shameful, and you know, at some point, I mean, the United States. I think people are going to be tired in the United. I mean, already a lot of the American public is no longer wanting to support those billions of dollars to Ukraine, and you have a lot of these Republican politicians now refusing or uh, trying to, um, uh, you know, prevent that money from going to Ukraine because the war is not. You know, what does the American taxpayer get for funding the war in Ukraine? Nothing. And, and they're going to start to say the same about Israel. I mean, yes, the Israel lobby is is powerful, but at the end of the day, I mean, the Jews are still a minority in the United States. And, I mean, even the Jewish community splintered over it. And the average American, I mean, people I talk to just in my neighborhood uh, are questioning this. You know, why should my taxpayer money go for this? You know, there are potholes on my street there. Uh, teachers are not well paid in my community. Uh, there isn't good uh, public transport. Why do I need to be funding this? And I think that's a common view of Americans. And, you know, they're, at a certain point, they're not going to accept all their taxpayer dollars just going into these endless conflicts in the Middle East that just continue to escalate and kill more and more people with no positive uh, results and doing nothing for the American public and taxpaying public. So uh, I think, uh, you know, at some point America will not be able to, the, the people just refuse to give all that money to Israel and Israel will be in big trouble then if, if other Arab countries unify, if they've built up so much hatred against them. Mm -hmm. So Israel could invite its own self-destruction. I mean, I think people warned that it was very dangerous. Even Israeli Zionists said, 
it very dangerous for us to be dependent on an outside power, whether it be the United States. Uh, and then they also warned, they said, we have to find a way to make you know, peace with the Arab population for our own success as a society. And fortunately, in those two areas, they failed. And so they've invited serious problems for themselves. So life may be more and more insecure for people inside Israel, and they could ultimately invite their, their own destruction as a state. Uh, which is sad yeah. as well. Yeah, you 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 mentioned Zionism now, and I just uh, I realized that we hadn't clarified these terms, and this is quite important because uh, people use terms interchangeably, which probably shouldn't be. I speak about Israel in terms of the country. My criticism generally is aimed at the Israeli government, not, obviously not the citizens. Uh, I don't refer to the Jews because I'm guessing that there are Christians and Muslims who also live in Israel. Uh, and Zionism is obviously something entirely different. Uh, but what's interesting is that when you criticize the Israeli government's actions, uh, you get accused of being an anti-Semite. Yeah, I, I don't think that's fair at all. I, I think the kind of discussion we're having here today is an important one that, that mm. many people should be having. And I think that there may be you know, slightly different views on, on different topics. But, I mean, the Israeli government should not be immune from criticism like any other government or even the you know, Jewish people who would go along. I mean, if Israel is carrying out horrific policies toward the Palestinians, that is wrong. And it should be called out as wrong. And there's nothing anti-Semitic about saying that. Uh, so I think this is just like a, a new McCarthyism where yeah. they're trying to stifle hate and pigeonhole well-intentioned people who have serious reservations about uh, these kind of policies. They don't hate the Jewish people or want the Jewish people exterminated. They like, uh, and probably most would like to see a Jewish state, but one that can coexist with the Palestinian people. Uh, so if they're not doing that, they're going to be criticized, and they, they should be criticized, and Jews should be questioning their own policy, just like Americans should question their government's policy. Mm. Jewish people, who have a, even more of a stake in the future of, of Israel and the state of the Jewish people, should be seriously questioning those, those policies and the treatment of the Palestinians. If you're a religious person or Jew, you want to promote certain value system in your life, and that is to be a good person, uh, to treat people with respect. And they're not doing that to the Palestinians, and that should be changed immediately. And that it reflects badly on every Jew if, if the Jews are doing that. Uh, as a Jewish person myself, I don't want to see my own people mistreating somebody. I know Jews were mistreated historically, uh, so I, I can empathize with people who are bullied or treated badly, and I don't want to become a bully myself. And the moment I cross that line... Or, or see my people doing that, I'm going to call them out that, that, that we've crossed the line. So you can call, call me anti-Semitic, but I don't think that's the case at all. And it's just like somebody questioned the American government. They're not anti-American. They want to see their government do better. They don't want to see their government attack Iraq based on lies or get involved in the war in Vietnam or they're killing millions of people for nothing. That's not anti-American. That's uh, they want to restore what America should represent in the world, not not that kind of bullying or uh, senseless war making. I want something slightly uplifting. Yet, yeah, do you have hope? 
um, I don't have great hope, but I mean, I, I think there's always hope, you know, good people like yourself. Uh, I think there are a lot of good people out there. And I think we have to make our voices heard and we have to try and educate our friends and neighbors and people in our community or, uh, and we have to try and build a movement to represent more uh, decent human values. And I think there is, there is hope, but I think that has to come from more people mobilizing together as to come from better education. I think education is really important of youth. If youth, uh, you know, a lot of the, I mean, I've taught in colleges for quite a while now, and I find the, I enjoy working with the young people because they're idealistic and they seem good natured and they, they're also quite objective. Like uh, we can discuss a lot of, you know, hot topics like we are today and they're usually very open-minded uh, and they're open to uh, criti criticism of their governments uh, or existing policy. So I think the hope is in the youth, a younger generation um, will you know, work towards a better society and that yeah, will help better inform and educate uh, others in the public, I think is very important uh, to give them you know, more knowledge so that they can advance uh, better uh, policies in the future your website is one of my favorite websites to to spend some time on but for those who don't know what it is tell me tell me how i can find it uh sure it's a uh, covert action magazine yeah, and this magazine was founded by a cia whistleblower and uh, yeah a lot of our articles look at these kind of hidden manipulations of powerful people who often create these conflicts uh and yeah, so go to www.covertactionmagazine.com. As always, Jeremy Kuzbrov, thank you for joining me in the trenches. My pleasure. Yeah, great discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.